This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn, and today is November the 19th. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you to drop us a line if you had questions for one of our upcoming guests, the cat daddy, Jackson Galaxy. I appreciate all of you sending in your questions. We recorded an interview a few days ago, and that episode is going to be coming out next Thursday, the 26th. And yes, that is Thanksgiving Day. To be fair, originally when we scheduled it, we expected a lot of you to be traveling for the holiday. What a perfect time to listen to Jackson Galaxy on the Best Friends Podcast on the drive to see your family. But the current state of things COVID-wise probably means that your plans have changed. But I still think you'll enjoy it. And it turns out you really don't have to be in the car to listen. People just want to drop their cats off or drop barrels off or do whatever, as opposed to taking ownership of the issue. The thing that frustrates trappers more than anything is when someone says, hey, I've got 12 cats that, you know, I just moved into a new house, got 12 cats back here. Help me. Well, we can hear, we, we can loan you traps, teach you how to do this. Wait, you want me to do this? You do it. You know, I, I think that, that we have to spend more time getting folks invested themselves into saying, no, 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 these guys belong here in your neighborhood, in your community. This is where they belong. But if you don't want 35 of them in a couple of months, you better learn the, what's actually pretty simple, you know? It was a very fun conversation, super interesting and smart guy. And Jackson's not bad either. No, I'm just kidding. Again, that's next week. Now, last week's episode was about cats and cats outside. We titled it, What Makes a Home? Part of that can be the judgments that we make in that regard, our own beliefs of what a perfect or right home is. In a few episodes before that, we shared a Best Friends Network town hall that centered around the question, what is cruelty and what is neglect? The fact that we're asking these questions demonstrates the shift in our industry to practices and policies that look to include everyone without judgments and prioritize the preservation of the human-animal bond. Social justice. I just want to pause there to give people a chance to change this to The Daily or My Favorite Murder. Now, that's a dumb joke, but those two words, social and justice, when you put them together these days, it can immediately be a very divided discussion. For every person who wants to understand the implications it has on animal welfare and animal sheltering, there's someone else who will say it doesn't belong anywhere near our work, that the larger discussions about race and class, they distract from the day-to-day work of saving lives. If you are part of the latter group, that's okay. It's a judgment-free zone. And honestly, the fact that you're still listening and didn't switch to the Stuff You Should Know podcast, that's huge. Because our ability to be open and listen not just hear, but listen to one another is essential. I want you to keep that in mind for today's discussion. Sloan Hawes is a research associate at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, or IHAC, that's at the University of Denver. Sloan and two of her colleagues recently had a commentary paper published called Punishment to Support, the Need to Align Animal Control Enforcement with the Human Social Justice Movement sort of a mouthful, but basically it's about trying to understand how the current model of animal control, animal services can be better, better for both people and pets. 
there are departments across the country that are moving away from the punishment-based model that prioritizes code enforcement. They're moving to a people-centered support model. We've been talking with directors of departments in those communities to see what they're doing and what the results have been. And we are excited to share those conversations with you. But today is the start of this discussion that will continue on the Best Friends podcast around this crucial topic. Hey, Sloan, thanks for doing this, uh, for, for talking with me. I think good to start if uh, you could just tell me who you are and what you do. My name is Sloan Hawes. I am a research associate at the Institute for Human Animal Connection. We are located in the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver. Um, I've been in this role for about five years now. I actually started out as a Maddie's Fun Research Fellow. Uh, I did a kind of a dual placement where I worked at the front intake desk at um, Dumb Friends League in Denver, Colorado and then did research for the second part of my fellowship. And that has evolved into the work um, that has come over the last five years of really focusing on building a research portfolio that looks at best practices in, in animal sheltering, particularly how animal welfare issues align with um, or don't align with, frankly, human social justice and environmental justice issues. It's incredibly interesting stuff to me. Why do you think, though, that we have not historically been better aligned with social services? It makes sense, obviously, that we're very animal centric, right? We're all here to save animals, but we've never made that connection, recognized it, and acted on the people part, you know, who actually own the pets. It's like we've just taken them out of the equation. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. I feel like that is kind of the question that animal welfare groups are reckoning with that we at IHAC are really trying to wrap our arms around as a research group. And as a researcher, um, it really kind of comes down to data and metrics and kind of which measures have we decided to pursue as our benchmarks as a field in animal welfare compared to what are the benchmarks in more of a human service agency orientation. And I think kind of at the heart of it, frankly, John, is um, just how much or how well we've captured the community's perspective um, and how do we view that community. I think my overarching kind of thought is that a lot of the way animal services has approached communities is from a very deficit-based view. Really, what are all the problems that people have that then lead to them not being able to keep their pets or not being able to adopt out new pets? And that really kind of flies in the face of the social work value of, of looking at everything from a strengths-based view and looking at really what does the capacity already have that we can leverage and build upon. That's a big thing that I think our research at IHAC focuses on is trying to develop metrics using a One Health framework, looking at the interconnectedness of human, animal, and environment health outcomes to bring these kind of strengths-based metrics into the animal welfare space instead of looking at everything from more of this kind of deficit problem view. Responsible pet ownership, certainly. Definitions out there, they're, Google it and you can find lots of organizations that have put a lot of thought into defining it. But in the context of this discussion, you know, with animal control and, and punishment-based, we have code enforcement. So what is responsible? You know, what have we defined it as in the past? And what do we think about that today? You know, I know it's a difficult one, but um, I mean, what is your definition of responsible pet ownership? 
Um, I guess I can tell you what it's not. Um, and it's not what has been codified in our animal control and animal protection policy. And it's probably not how a lot of organizations that are doing things like adoptions, it's not a lot of the categories or the qualifications that we lay out for who makes a good quote unquote adopter. I can say that those definitions of responsible pet ownership from a social work perspective are really fraught with prioritizing kind of middle class, middle upper class kind of socioeconomic status. Really, it's a definition of what those folks have been able to obtain historically, um, rather than what really, frankly, the majority of folks experience in terms of their relationship with pets and how they choose to care for them. And so that's maybe a little bit of what I'm getting at when I talk about what actually is the community's perspective on these issues. I think animal welfare has a really unique opportunity right now with greater access to folks through telehealth or, you know, through expanding their foster network to really start understanding, like, how do people actually want to have relationships with pets? You know, is it, do people even want to be adopting and keeping pets in their family? You know, that's kind of where I leave it up to program teams to really get the community perspectives. That's um, where my research training comes into play. I don't go in looking for a specific answer. I go in to find what the answer is and ask objective questions about it. And so, to your question of what does responsible pet ownership, pet keeping look like? I think that's like the big question we need to be asking right now and starting to ask all communities, you know, especially folks of color and low income folks, um, because that's the group. Those are the groups that we've historically as a field in animal welfare been least successful at engaging and frankly, like sort of excluding from our work, if not, <laughs> if not explicitly you know, punishing them for being owners, types of pet owners, other than what we've defined as responsible. So I think if we really want to take this issue of underserved communities seriously, um, that we need to start with our definitions, like that's step one. We've tried to address some of these things on the podcast. The uh, Best Friends Network town halls have gone into this as well. Other organizations, obviously, but defining terms and decision-making around them individual judgments will always come into play. It's just the way it is. But I think we we need to have guidelines. We need to agree on things that can uh, inform. What I'm, so what I'm saying, we can have this 30,000 foot level conversation, Sloan, about human, animal, social services, race and class and socioeconomics, but there's still actual guidance needed to help define or inform decision-making for lack of a better way to say it, I guess, what is good and what is bad? Does that does that make any sense? Language really does matter. Um, and how we define those words in policy, in practice, as we interact with folks, like even just the language that we use in town halls and as we start explaining new program areas, that language is, is step one. Um, and so one piece that I think is really important to tease out in the animal control um, conversation is the idea of cruelty you know, which is like maybe more intentional, like there's some actual intent behind that versus neglect, which I think is, is neglect is this area that really has a lot more opportunity to be in that gray area that you're talking about. I think the definition of cruelty is codified. You know, there there are appropriate um, interventions to address cruelty. And there's a whole area of research out there on the connection between interspecies violence, like between violence against animals and violence against people. 
And I guess I feel like we've spent too much time on that because it's, it, especially in research, because it, it is a small percentage of the cases, I think, that most animal control officers, protection officers are experiencing in the field. And this is part of the work that um, IHEC is um, hoping to do in the coming years, is really starting to get at the proportion of cases that are more in this gray area that you're talking about, in this area of neglect, that I think if you look at it through a social work view, really what we're kind of known for as a field is, is looking at problems, not as just an individual's problem, but as part of a broader system that involves all of these factors like a socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity and uh, cultural background and values. What you start to recognize is that issue of neglect is an issue of capacity, either of that individual, of that community as a whole, how much they have access to services. Um, some of these areas that um, whereas animal welfare organizations or an animal protection officer might be more limited in addressing that individual level of capacity issues um, or strengths that that person has that maybe doesn't align with them being a quote-unquote responsible pet owner. We as animal welfare organizations do really have an opportunity to make an impact on that maybe more community-wide level of are we providing accessible services to this area? Um, do we have staff members that speak the language of the folks who live in our um, quote unquote high intake communities? I think that's where this like recognizing the gray area that you're pointing out in neglect, understanding the root causes of cruelty and neglect and um, trying to identify program solutions on the animal welfare side to address those root causes. Um, the research backs the program side up by helping identify what those causes are using both qualitative and quantitative methods. But it really comes down to the programs having kind of really the humility to acknowledge like, hey, we're still seeing cruelty and neglect in our communities. What we're doing isn't working. Like, let's put the resources that we're putting into this really reactive system of providing citations to these to these community members let's actually put it into providing some support resources that it could, could address those root causes. Um, and so that's where this shift in language um, that we bring out in the commentary of going, I would even argue we're a little bit behind in our language already in the commentary, going from punishment orientation and animal control to support. I'd actually say, let's start swapping out support for capacity because we really don't want to be building a system where where people are relying on us as, as animal welfare or agencies to care for their pets. What the goal of social work has always been, and what I think the goal of animal welfare is as well, is to work ourselves out of a job, right? Which requires community to have the capacity at each of those levels, the individual, the community level, to like achieve true health and welfare for themselves and for their pets. And that's not gonna be done if we keep punishing people, if we keep kind of breaking down their access to the system that's gonna support their health and wellness. So language is the start of that, but also just like decentering everything we've ever thought about this, using data to inform our progress moving forward, but really just being able to acknowledge with humility, like what we're doing isn't working and we need to find something, some new strategies. I tell you what, Sloan, and I mean this sincerely, I hope I'm out of a job <laughs> sooner rather than later. I'm ready for vacation. So let's get this done. Yes. <laughs> Don't we all, you know, like I'm, I'm ready for that, like vacation for the rest of my life. That would be great. Or, or move on to the next big problem, right? Like it would be super awesome <laughs> to reach some of those goals, right? You mentioned ordinances and cruelty and we have agreement there. I mean, up until this point, right? I mean, dog fighting, there are things that we all, Absolutely would agree. Abject cruelty. Would one way to handle this maybe 
to change ordinances. Like we could find a better way to write it and put it down on paper. I just, I keep coming back to this belief of needing to have guidance because we can't ask animal control officers who aren't paid enough, who don't get enough training, who are overworked, underappreciated, burned out. We can't ask them to go out and understand how to approach complex problems like this and make judgment calls without more, more guidance, I guess. Yeah, I, I think you touch on two really important issues. And we actually identify a number of other potential barriers to this shift in the commentary paper. It's a whole paragraph. So you've named the two probably biggest ones, which are the need for policy change, addressing the specific areas of language that really just set up the system to be biased towards low-income individuals or communities of color. Um, so that's one fairly easy, straightforward approach is reviewing policies for that language um, that reflects implicit bias. Uh, and then the other is training of our officers, um, recognizing that there are high rates of turnover happening, high rates of burnout and fatigue. They see a lot of really hard stuff, like every single day. It's a similar issue that we have with our frontline staff in shelters. You know, they are have like high exposure to people going through really hard things, pets going through really hard things, and high rates of euthanasia when we're not kind of working in a life-saving model. And so uh, training of folks uh, to be prepared and have the resources and skills they need um, to manage crises. Uh, you know, you don't just throw any old person out into a case management role in a social work field, in a human services field. Those folks go through years of training, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, you know, most of us who do this kind of really hard work, we have master's degrees, we have, you know, licensing, uh, we don't have that level of training and, um, and, and requirement uh, for our control officers. And I, I think it's setting them up to fail. And so I know there's been a lot of organizations doing great work of trying to introduce diversity, equity, inclusion training into animal control agencies. And I think that's a great first step. But it's one of these bigger concerns I have about the conversation of sort of starting to treat shelter organizations as human service agencies. That That's great if it comes with the training for those frontline staff. But if you're expecting your run of the mill entry level intake person to be a social worker, like that's just unfair. And you're setting up your organization to have high rates of turnover, high rates of burnout. And frankly, like you, you'll be the cause of uh, lots of mental health concerns and physical health concerns and social health concerns. Like it will be negative. Like so, um, I think a really important kind of you know fine print to this um, this call for a shift that this commentary is talking about is there needs to be intentionality to move in that direction, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, this field, it's it's a field, you know, like there's lots of moving parts and pieces. The issue of implicit bias in animal control policy, you know, permeates everywhere because it starts at the policy level and then it bleeds down into how the organizations run things and then how the individual officers, you know, interact with community members. So I guess I'm just saying it's not simple. Uh, we're not saying that it's just like overnight, it's going to happen. It's more of um, kind of calling out you know, that this needs to happen if we really want to do what we say we want to do. If we really want to help animals, first and foremost, we have to help the people. Um, we have to build, go beyond just helping them and actually start giving resources that we're using 
that harm people and animals towards things that are going to build their original capacity so that they really don't need us eventually. So I may be going a little bit on a tangent now at this point, but um, it's all to say that we need to be <laughs> intentional about what are the barriers that are in place right now? What are the strategies for overcoming them? And um, and really do think about this in a systems way, um, right? Like don't think about it as it's just a policy change pr problem. It's all of those levels. It's policy down to the individual level that um, that might need to be considered and, and addressed through program solutions or other intervention options. I do want to acknowledge that you, Sloan, this paper, the commentary, I feel like I'm asking a lot of questions like, damn it, Sloan, tell me what to do right now. And I know that that, that really isn't your role in a sense. So uh, I apologize, but I also don't because this is a great conversation. It's complex, identifying training, policy, ordinance changes. Like those are things that I can actually start to wrap my head around, right? But as I step back, and look and think about the totality of what's involved to realize this new future, I guess, of, of how we're going to work with people, people in our communities. It's very daunting. I, I, I don't know. Are there examples maybe of what communities are doing, what this is going to take? Like, I'm just trying to envision my own community, the number of agencies involved, the communication. That, I mean, do we know how we need to go about it? Um, I'm going to share something and it might feel like a sidestep, but I promise it, I think it's related. I think the core issue that you're talking about, like our ability to collaborate across systems, it goes above and beyond just like an individual organization's commitment. It goes to really literally like the system, like the whole system that all of us exist and operate in being set up to silo the health of humans the health of animals and the health of the environment. If you think about like just academic disciplines, how we've been set up, right? Like you're a bio major or you're an English major, um, you're a psych major, or you know you you look at chemistry as your major. Um, we've kind of set up the world to segment humans, animals, and the environment into their own disciplines, and it's reflected in our funding opportunities, in the way we organize our organizations. And so the field of human-animal interaction that we really bucket all of our work within, it's a newer field that's emerged over the last probably 10 years or, or more, so fairly recent as a quote-unquote field, is working to break down those silos, and it's really hard. <laughs> um, even our work in at IHAC in terms of research, like we're working hard to break into the human service funding field, but because we're working with animal welfare organizations as the primary program or intervention place, it's difficult to make that case for why it's, it matters to invest resources in an animal welfare program if we don't have the data that supports that supporting animals also supports people. And so that's where this research agenda that IHAC is leading, looking at One Health, the interconnectedness of human and animals in the environment, is incredibly critical. And we really are trying to apply that lens to literally any program that will entertain it with us. Because the fact of the matter is, is there just isn't data at this point really to truly support that, that interconnectedness claim of those things. We know that there's certain things like zoonotic disease, which might be rooted in animal health to begin with and has really harmful impacts potentially on human health. And so we have a few areas where One Health has really taken ground. Um, but I would argue it's always been from this frame of something that's going to ultimately benefit humans. 
we've never done like kind of a one health project, if you will, truly balancing human animals in the environment kind of holistically as all really important integral com components to hold up together. That's why the path forward is, is feels so hard is because we're rewarded every step of the way to kind of put ourselves like, oh, we're animal people, we're not human people. And so it's, that's why it's really exciting to see organizations like American Pets Alive's Human Animal Support Services Project, or even just the work that Pets for Life from the Humane Society of the United States has been doing for years of, um, you know, going door to door and building relationships and, uh, you know, best friends work moving into this, like, focused on community-centered sheltering. Like, there's a lot of really promising program approaches that are showing up but we have to have the data that measures not only how is this driving life-saving, live release rate outcomes for animals, how is it also impacting human health and environmental health measures? And we're just like still really struggling with that, even as an academic field. Like I've like literally tried to read every single article I can find about One Health and still haven't found anyone out there that's like really trying to balance all three at the same time. And it just speaks to that system, rewarding the, the siloing and things like that. So I just, I would love to see our field along with our mission of kind of upholding social justice and environmental justice values. I would love to see us also kind of line up our data collection systems and our program systems to think that way too. Um, because as long as we keep siloing ourselves, like that system is going to keep moving forward. We just have to like draw the line in the sand at some point and say, <laughs> this is important enough that we have to rethink everything and, and start going at this from more of a One Health approach. Let's talk measurement. You mentioned live release rate. Data is everything, right? We're better than we've ever been. And how we collect, you know, what we collect. I mean, what you're saying is we're going to have to completely rethink what valuable data is and how we collect it, right? And it's, it's going to be a tangent uh, probably, but but hang in with me here. So nonprofit measurement. Today, we've got GuideStar, Charity Navigator. These are organizations that, for better or worse, have driven home to the public the belief or you know, saying that a successful nonprofit is measured by how a dollar is spent, right? So 90 cents of every dollar goes to programs, that's a good nonprofit. But it really doesn't mean anything because your programs and success at achieving them, your mission, it could be total garbage. So you could put 99 cents of that dollar towards it, it doesn't matter. So and it, it so it just sort of reinforces this belief that nonprofits, you know, should pay like crap and give crap benefits and not invest in staff and people and things. Like that's wrong, right? So we need to really rethink that. And there are people who've been beating this drum for a while, uh, Dan Pallotta and others. So we recognize that we need to change it, but how do we do it? Like, what is program efficacy? You know, for whatever live release rate or save rate isn't capturing, it is capturing one very important element of what we do, which is outcomes, right? So if we start to take in all of these new things, is there an understanding of what a new measurement system would be, could be? Have we identified individual data points that are valuable? Uh, yes and no. I would say, at least within IHAC's work, we're hoping to have a few answers on that in the next year or so as we wrap up really our big study that we've been working on the last three or four years with the Humane Society of the United States Pets for Life program. We have been gathering literally every data point we can think of across the three One Health domains 
um, as well as data on the Pepsi Life program itself and the clients that they serve to try to understand specifically which community health variables across those one health triad areas are significantly impacted by effective animal welfare programming that really focuses on addressing the root causes, access to care barriers to animal welfare challenges in the communities. Um, and we've set it up in a really rigorous way where we have preset comparison communities that have been matched across a number of important um, social factors that might be confounding for what, what trends we see. Um, this is where I get in the research he speaks. So let me know <laughs> when I need to take it down a notch. Uh, Listen, you lost me a while ago. I don't know what gave it away. Like my confused bewildered face. Uh, and then I've also gone cross-eyed. <laughs> no idea. Uh, a very simple mind uh, you're teaching here, Sloan. So uh, I appreciate you bringing it down to my level. No, I think that our goal, um, we have one more year left of data collection. Um, and so at the end of that data collection, we'll be um, building a number of models um, using statistical analyses that allow us to identify which factors in a community across these three One Health Triad areas are significantly impacted by animal welfare. So the, our hope is that we'll have another a number of other measures that we know are impacted by good animal welfare programming that other organizations can then also begin tracking. Um, it will hopefully expand our understanding of what animal welfare, how animal welfare promotes the health of the entire community. And part of the strategy there is we're starting with a big laundry list of all the possible ones and we'll be able to narrow it down. So instead of organizations having to go through the kind of troubleshooting trial and error, let's try measuring this for a couple of years and see if we see any changes, um, we're already kind of doing that for everybody. And so the goal is to walk out of this study with a list of variables, a list of data that folks can collect moving forward to look at the One Health impacts of their program. As part of that, we've developed an instrument called the One Health Community Assessment. It's currently 115 items, but we're working on a shorter version that people can do a little bit more rapid fire. It takes them about 20 to 30 minutes to complete right now, uh, but the shorter version would hopefully go a little bit quicker. That we're validating at this point, both in English and in Spanish, as a tool that organizations can also use besides this other list of variables that will validate as you know, significant drivers related to animal welfare um, programming. Um, but this will be an instrument that folks can use of, to evaluate their own programs. So there's a few tools and kind of findings that will be coming out over the next couple of years from this one Pets for Life as One Health study we've been working on over the last three years. The, the no, so that was the yes part of, are there <laughs> strategies or are there things we can be collecting? The no part of this is that kind of coming back to this idea of asking the community what they think. I don't know that anybody is doing a super great job at asking for community perspective of what they want from, from their animal service providers, um, what they really need. Um, I think we've all, it's kind of tied up in this responsible pet ownership definition. You know, animal control, or I guess just animal service agencies in general have really approached animal welfare as a certain set of things. It's like spay neutered, uh, you know, live inside, you know, it's like a very short list of, of criteria. And that has been like the primary focus of our programming, right? We've like developed really amazing strategies for getting spay neuter, like literally everywhere. And that's been fantastic to see progress there. But I don't know if we've ever like kind of taken a step back and been like, 
do people even really want to spay and neuter their pets? And, and you know, so that's maybe not the, the question exactly we need to be asking. I guess I'm just trying to kind of circle back to this idea of like, we need to ask the community what they want from us as animal service providers. And so that's where I think we don't have answers yet, but that's like kind of step one in a lot of the research that um, IHAC has planned over the next few years is like designing a research portfolio based off of community goals and community needs and not kind of driving it based off of what animal organ welfare organizations have identified as their strategic goals. I think there's room for both to be tried out, but I just think we're going to be off base yet again with the quote unquote next generation of animal welfare work if we don't kind of correct the original sin, if you will, of like coming in with our own definition of responsible pet keeping and not just starting from what does community want. Uh, you said the term triad uh, areas. I want to make sure people have connected the dots there. Those are the three areas, this one health part, right? People, animals, and environment. I just want to make sure uh, people are following there. So you span neuter as an example of people not wanting to do it, right? And we I say that as a collective we, the movement, are not ready to accept people not fixing their pets. We're just not. And I, I'm not advocating that we don't continue to promote spay and neuter and bring people services, but I think it's one example of many in this developing, changing world where we aren't going to be ramming the same things down every pet owner's throat. We're saying we want to develop a relationship with you. And to that end, screaming at you because your dog is intact and you don't want to change that, that's not the answer. But that's a huge amount of cultural change within us. So we are a society, we're at a point where no one listens to each other, Sloan. Uh, confirmation bias, people digging their heels in. So there's not a lot of like, let's come together and solve problems together because we disagree on so much. And that's what we focus on. All that to say that that's not really a question, I guess. It's just a statement. I, I totally agree. Yeah. 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 And honestly, the word that the social, like kind of social worker circles that I'm a part of really falls back on is this idea of cultural humility. Um, and it started out as cultural competence. And I think that's a little bit of where animal welfare is at is we have become competent in providing a version of animal welfare, but it's our version of animal welfare. It's not the community's version of animal welfare. And so we need to make a similar shift in, it, in the way animal welfare approaches their definition of responsible pet keeping or what have you to be sort of more from this place of humility of like, we don't know what everybody wants or what everybody needs. And I, I don't think we ever should have been in a position to decide that, but there are systems that reward us for that, right? Like there's funders who are willing to fund us to do that work. And there are, you know, government agencies that put us on the hook to figure that out, right? Like they, they define what metrics are and we have to figure out programs that can drive change on those. So again, like the, the system is set, has set us up to fail. Like the system has not been set up to achieve social justice or, you know, environmental justice or animal, animal justice, like from the get go. And so Again, this is really hard. There's lots of barriers to, to doing this work, like to shift from punishing individuals for not meeting our expectations to building their capacity to meet those expectations from the get go or to, to meet their own expectations of how they want to live their lives. You know, you don't get there by 
like superimposing ideas on folks. You get there by like letting people choose for themselves. A lot of this is built around charge topics, ideas, social justice movement. People hear the word race right now and we're jumping to Black Lives Matter and riots and whatever. I mean, it just obfuscates the actual discussion. And I know when we talk about this stuff on the podcast, people get angry and with me and say things like, keep politics out of animal rescue, and I'm never going to listen to your podcast again. Uh, and for the record, we're not going to stop talking about it. But you're out there developing this, working with others in the field who are trying to bring these concepts to a larger audience, right? Many of whom are not receptive. Are there strategies, language, are there things that you've found success with in terms of how we talk about them so we're not instantly creating a rift? It's a great question. I feel like it's kind of at the heart of why I do what I do. I want my research and the research that my team does to speak to all audiences. And that's kind of the, that is what you, that's kind of what um, is the mark of good research is that it is objective, it is fair, and it gets at the heart of issues and doesn't come from a biased place. And so I think the common language that everyone can speak to is that we all want to be putting our resources into things that are sustainable and effective things that actually address the problems that we're looking at and things that last over time, ideally. Like you get the most return on your investment with whatever that program or that individual who you hire, like you want to see um, effectiveness and sustainability. And that is something that really good, rigorous research can show. It can show direct impacts, positive or negative, and it can show if that those effects lasted over time it can also show if that finding is generalizable to other settings. And so that is the lens through which we design all of our work is with that eye for measuring generalizability to other settings and sustainability over time. What I can say is that a reactive orientation to social problems like a punishment approach in animal control policy is not addressing the root causes of cruelty or neglect. Um, so by definition, by not addressing the root causes, it is not as effective or sustainable as a solution as other approaches that have, have been tried and have demonstrated to be longer term lasting um, and more generalizable, like supportive or capacity building approaches. And so that's really the intention of this initial commentary paper is to just shed a little bit of light on the social justice movement in human services and in criminal justice in, in particular um, for this um, animal control policy commentary has identified, you know, in basically controlled trials of comparing a punishment approach to a supportive approach, um, which one is more effective and which one lasts longer. And it's the support approaches every time. And so um, I think IHAC research is interesting in testing. Again, we're not coming in with a preconceived notion, but maybe planting the seed of the idea that we should try shifting some of the resources we're putting into a reactive punishment approach to cruelty and neglect into some of these more supportive approaches that are already taking root in the field. It's amazing to see. 
and just test, like, do we get the same return on investment? Um, do we see similar changes in public safety measures? Do we see similar changes in um, rates of intake in shelters? Are, do the live release rates tank all of a sudden because we start putting money into support instead of putting it into punishment? As a good researcher, we don't have data to know really one way or the other yet, but we do have precedent in the human criminal justice system. We know that things like mass incarceration are not working. It's just kind of a moment for us to realize, like, we don't want to replicate that same system that's not working in the human criminal justice side, in the animal justice side. So we owe it to ourselves to maybe try it out, try something else out. And so the, that common language, I think, that you can use to build support is we all want to have a better return on our investment and we want things that are going to last. Let's look to precedent, like let's look to other things that have worked in the past or let's rethink and try something new. But I really think this animal control area is just ripe for change and ripe for like rethinking it. Um, and this is the moment to do it. Like right now, like during COVID when we're all rethinking everything, it's not like 10 years from now, like when we re reach no kill status, hopefully, <laughs> Uh, you know, like it, it's just it, it's now, you know, it's not five years from now. It's not 10 years from now. So it'll be three years to no kill 2025. Three. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the things I continue to hear about this is like what we're doing, animal welfare, what we're doing, what we need to do. You know, animal welfare needs to reach out and do this. But animal is just one part. Right. Are there similar things happening Um for lack of a better term, it's a really bad one, I guess, uh, symbolically of what we're talking about. But what's happening on that side of the fence? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think um, it's happening on both sides of the fence. You know, I think as kind of exemplified by the emergence of this human-animal interaction field, which has come with veterinary social workers as a profession. And my degree is in animal-assisted social work. Um, so not in the veterinary sphere, but really in the social work sphere. There is growth over really the last decade. You could maybe argue it started a little bit sooner than that uh, based off of early leaders in the field. Um, but really in the last decade, it started to take hold in this human service field that pets in particular are an integral part of folks' health and wellness. Um, their social wellness, their physical wellness, their mental and emotional wellness. And so social workers are increasingly recognizing the importance of incorporating animals either into their clinical practice or thinking about the roles of how a pet could support the health of an individual or family. Um, so we're at similar kind of thinking processes of like the need to integrate across human services and, and animal services. I think the primary difference is that human services are coming at it from a strengths-based perspective of pets being a way to build capacity, whereas animal services are a little bit coming at it still from a deficit perspective of, well, we need human services so that we can keep driving animal outcomes. Like we can keep saving animals from those bad people who are not taking care of them. If we continue in that deficit view in the animal services realm, it's going to continue to be a reason that human services don't collaborate with animal services because the mission and the values are not aligned. I'm saying that with all of the love in my heart, feeling like someone who who quite intentionally wants to be on both sides of that fence, um, because I think there's value to having conversations across them. But there's a real shift that needs to happen in how animal services talks about people especially vulnerable populations like low-income individuals and um, communities of color, 
um, before that communication is going to come more smoothly and more organically, because frankly, social services, like the sentiment there is like, we have enough people problems. Why, you know, why would we want to think about animal problems too on top of that? Like we're already like an overburdened system. It, it's just too hard to try to think about using our resources for other things. And that's where IHAC comes in and says, you know, it, it's actually not a diversion of resources that you could be spending on humans into animals. We actually think that incorporating animals into your work can make your work with people more effective and more efficient and more sustainable. And so that's where that One Health Lens comes in, that it's still kind of in this realm of felt knowledge. Like we, we feel that it's important for these systems to be aligned, but we still really need the data to support it. And there's been lots of great research over the last 10 or so years that this human-animal interaction field has been evolving on the human side, but we really need the animal services side to get on board too, so that, that the opportunities for collecting data and for testing these hypotheses can expand. So that's a little bit of where we're at and why this like aligning the animal welfare movement with the human social justice movement is so critical because they're they're gonna complement each other when they're working together, but if they're not working together, you know, they're really gonna hinder progress. I'm just over here bringing up more problems with no solutions, uh, Sloan, so I'm sorry about that. But let's talk money, the cost. We talk about more training, more highly skilled workers who are more social work-based, right? Social workers. I mean, that's not a cheap employee. uh, And not one person listening to this has extra time. So that alone, you know, it's all great. But I think for a lot of people... It's not about making the case that this is important. It is going to be about how to get it done. And again, I know this is not, you know, you having the answer, you know, answers to this, but it is to say we have a lot to figure out. I think that's why we started with the commentary paper here too, is like float the idea out there, see folks who are interested in piloting this kind of model and like, let's start doing some research on it. IHAC is interested in developing partnerships with organizations that want to do really good research on their programs. And, you know, that's really the intention with the commentary paper is to say, hey, here's the state of the academic literature now. Here's some future directions for research um, and just start stirring up those research opportunities. Again, this is great conversation, Sloan. So much great uh, stuff. And uh, for those who want to get more involved, learn about the research, uh, I think they can participate also, right? Should they, do they need to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to hear from folks. And, um, you know, maybe it doesn't look like moving forward a formal research study. Maybe it just looks through talking through the data that you're collecting. Um, you know, IHAC really wants to be seen as a resource for the animal sheltering, animal services, animal control world. Um, that's why we do this research is because we want it to inform practice. And so folks can expect to be hearing from us at conferences of what we're finding um, or, th- you know, they're welcome to reach out to us as well. Um, and we, we'd love to have a conversation. Bestfriends.org slash podcast. You go there, click the link for this episode, episode 40, and you'll be able to access resources, including information about the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, how you can get in contact with them, and be a part of this conversation. Bestfriends.org slash podcast. The producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. That's it for this week. Please remember to wash your hands and wear a mask. Next week... Jackson Galaxy. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.